Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, it's Super Bowl week. So I'm glad to be joined by Clay Travis, founder of OutKick and co-host of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show. This is episode 38. From sports to politics, from new media to one of the oldest forms of it, we begin with the storylines to watch on the field and in the gambling market ahead of the Super Bowl. Looking forward to this conversation for a while. Glad we could do it. Um, I wanted to start with, you know, it's Super Bowl week. And so there are lots of Super Bowl storylines. I know we've got the Kelsey Bowl. We've got Andy Reid. We've got uh, the number one teams in each uh, conference facing off here. What do you see as you look at this? Uh, you know, what what's kind of the the big storylines that we should be watching for the casual fan and, and for those who are, you know, really big NFL uh, NFL fans themselves? Well, gambling pick for everybody. Uh, I'm on the Chiefs and I'm on the under. So uh, if both of those don't hit, you can blame me. I I think the biggest story is Patrick Mahomes. With Tom Brady retiring, Tom Brady went to 10 Super Bowls, won seven of them. Uh, Patrick Mahomes is only 27 years old. This is his third Super Bowl. The question that has been hanging out there, five straight AFC championship games for him, going to be the MVP of the league. He's the best player in the NFL at the quarterback position, which makes him the best player in the sport overall, in my opinion. Um, And so the question is, can he enter that rarefied air at this young of an age, 27, and get that second Super Bowl? If he does, you can start to look ahead and say, all right, he's already among the elites. One of the great things about Brady's career was you can break down Brady's career by decade. Brady was a Hall of Famer in his 20s if he had stopped playing. Brady was a Hall of Famer in his 30s if he had only played in his 30s. Brady was a Hall of Famer in his 40s if he had only played in his 40s. So what kind of longevity can Patrick Mahomes have? And can he kick down that door and officially become a multi-time Super Bowl winner, which automatically elevates him uh, to a standard that very few quarterbacks ever ascend to? That's the primary story. Secondary story, look, he's the underdog. Uh, Jalen Hurts has come out of nowhere, and if he and the Eagles win a championship, it would be an incredible validation for Jalen Hurts and and his tenure in the NFL when, to be fair, I think a lot of Eagles fans, when this season began, thought to themselves, okay, Jalen Hurts may not be the guy. Instead, he came out, arguably had the best season of any quarterback in the NFC, dominant performances in the playoff by the Eagles so far, and now they get an opportunity to win uh, a Super Bowl and are favored to do so, which would put Jalen Hurts in a category, frankly, that I don't think anybody would have foreseen when the season started. If I had said as my prediction, hey, Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs are going to win a championship, nobody would have even reacted. That would have been maybe the least risky prediction possible. The Eagles and Jalen Hurts to win a championship would have been a big one. Um, and so, uh, to me, those are the two primary storylines. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, you mentioned at the top here, chiefs and the under, uh, the gambling aspect of this is really interesting. You know, I saw a set, I believe this is the second closest, uh, line that we've seen in the Super Bowl since, uh, since these, obviously now gambling has become such a big part of sports coverage in general, but it does seem like we're getting based on the gambling line, very evenly matched teams here. Unlike maybe other past Super Bowls also. 
Yeah, that's true. And look, in a one-game scenario in football, anything can happen, right? We're not talking about a seven-game series in the NHL or the NBA or Major League Baseball, which is why I think it's so captivating to so many people and why 100 million people will be watching plus uh, on, uh, on Sunday on Fox. I can't wait. Yeah, I want to I want to talk more about kind of the just Super Bowl as a cultural figure, you know, in in a, in a world moving away from linear television, you know, that one has to stand. Let's get to that later. But uh, let me stick with gambling for a second, because that, it's really interesting. You know, I, you you've had uh, gambling shows before on Fox Sports. Um, you know, certainly I would say it's gone. I, I remember the early days of ESPN. It used to pretend that fantasy football wasn't a real thing and certainly not talk about lines yeah. and talk about, you know, under I mean, you know, parlays and everything you know uh uh so so what do you think about you know as someone who's been in this industry for a while has seen the whole transition what do you make of the way gambling has become such a big part of sports media now and the entire kind of ecosystem of sports well i saw it coming for a long time um and uh to me sports gambling just makes sports more fun And if you can make any product more fun, I think fantasy sports did that. I would say in my life, there have been three primary paradigm shifts that have altered the way all of us experience sports. The first was cable, right? I'm old enough to remember uh, turning on a radio and listening to a game or waking up and going and getting a newspaper to go look at a box score to see who won because every game wasn't on television, right? And you didn't have ESPN and you couldn't watch SportsCenter and uh, you got two minutes of local sports news on the local news at the end of the day. So cable and satellite, the emergence uh, changed everything, paradigm shift. I think fantasy sports. I think fantasy sports changed uh, the way that we consume sports in a monster way, particularly for the NFL. And then I think sports gambling is that third paradigm shift, which fundamentally alters the way that we experience the sport in many ways. All of those, by the way, very beneficial to sports, increasing the audience, increasing the amount of fun. Uh, And that's what I think sports gambling did. And I'm not claiming to be a quant. I'm not claiming to be uh, an incredible analytics guru. Uh, But what I love about sports is uh, when it comes to gambling, you're right or wrong at the end of a game, right? (laughs) right? I think in an era where so much of life is BS, right? Uh, Politics oftentimes feels like BS. You either win or lose, and you're either on one side or the other. And so I I think it has just increased the overall fun. I did a show essentially for four years daily on FS1, had a tremendous time with it, uh, breaking down games every night. Uh, I love gambling. Uh, To me, the sort of sweet spot is people who are betting 50 or or $100 a game Ideally, it's not something that fundamentally alters your life one way or the other. But if you're going to go golf, the way that I would describe it, you're going to walk around for three or four hours. You're probably going to end up dropping 100 bucks by the time you're done. And that money's gone forever. You go to a movie with your wife. You go to a movie and dinner. You're probably going to spend 100 bucks or more. That money is gone forever. If you watch a game on television, you can watch it for three hours or so. And at the end of the game, you can actually make a little bit of money doing it. And if you lose, well, you paid for the entertainment value and maybe enjoyed it a little bit more. Uh, So to me, that's the sweet spot. Uh, And I think it's why so many people are responding in a positive way to sports gambling. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like your uh, your local, you know, your friends' poker game that you're going to. It, it's it's casual, and that's and that's also, I think, what has been so interesting about this kind of third evolution of sports that you're talking about. Because it was when it first really kind of came onto the scene, it was it was the experts, you know, it was the people sitting in there with all the numbers and everything. And now it's because that's so unlike what gambling is for the average sports fan. You know, the accessibility has made it just just this casual fun thing to throw a few bucks on and enhance the experience. And, you know, the media seems, I think, to starting, starting to kind of catch up onto where, where that, yeah, where that is. That's what I loved about Vegas the most was that feeling before it was legal to gamble on sports anywhere else of just walking into a sports book and seeing the lines everywhere and knowing that you can take stakes. I know people uh, have been gambling for a long time illegally uh, or outside the bounds right. of uh, law with bookies and everything else. But to me, this was and and is going to be, and look, I mean, it's kind of like the lottery, right? Um, I, I think basically every state that has a lottery is going to end up in some way allowing people to bet on sports. What led Clay to launch his own sports media property? And how does he deal with all the many haters who come his way? You have done so many different things, and you still are kind of doing a variety of different things in in, in your current roles. Um, and and I, I guess you know I want to start with just the idea of building something on your own, and then you know making it now a part with with Outkick and Outkick the coverage, and then what that became, bringing it into Fox. The 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 feeling of kind of starting from something from scratch, kind of the entrepreneurial side of the media that you, that you that you built. And then contrasting that with kind of where you are inside of a large behemoth like like a fox, what's that experience like? And particularly those early days of building out, kick the coverage. How did that evolve for you? So I started writing online in 2004, um, and I was a full time practicing attorney at that time. And I, I, I mean, when you start literally at zero, saying, "Man, I I remember expressly thinking, man, I wish I could have a hundred daily readers." And then I remember thinking, I wish I could have a thousand daily readers. Um, and, you know, the idea that we would build to the point where Outkick has got 20 million readers some months is uh, is is frankly something that I would not have foreseen as possible. Now, my, my timing was good. I started writing online in 04 um, and I've been diligent about doing that. Uh, and that led into radio, which then led into TV. And each of those mediums are different. Uh, initially, the guy that I would look to was Tony Kornheiser, uh, because when I was at college, I would have read his Washington Post column and listened to his radio show. And then when PTI started, he was really good at TV, too. And so I wanted to be able to be good in all three of those uh, capacities. And I like to think that I am. Uh, and I like the challenge of continuing to grow and evolve and do things in uh, in different manner. I mean, I started doing, you know, these Periscope videos back uh, back in the day because I loved the idea of going direct to the audience. But I started out kicking eleven because I'd already written at Deadspin, at uh, CBS Sports, at uh, at Fan House, and I felt like I knew the online digital sports brand and industry better than maybe a lot of people. But I also just wanted to control my uh, my ability to have a job. Right. Like so right. a lot of people out there who work in any industry, especially if it's a newly expanding one, have had that experience where suddenly you get fired. And it's not because you weren't good. Uh, I turned off my phone, which I rarely do uh, after uh, the uh, Auburn and uh, Oregon national title game. I had come back to Nashville. I was sitting on a panel, actually, on the future of media. 
And when I turned my phone back on, Fan House had been sold uh, effectively to Sporting News, and all of us were out of a job. Wow. So, uh, so that was, you know, the, hey, what do I want to do now? And frankly, I just didn't want my ability to make a living as a writer to be in somebody else's hands. And so when I started OutKick, I did all the ad sales. Um, I, uh, I, I wrote all the articles and uh, I used at that time social media distribution to allow my audience to find me. Uh, I was doing local sports talk radio in Nashville as well. And uh, and we built OutKick into what I like to think is a, a, a really good and successful business. And uh, the pivot you asked about, you know, the thing that I like is not going to shock anybody. I like to have control, right? I like to be able to say exactly what I think and have nobody kind of telling me, hey, you shouldn't say that. And what Fox is great about, I really do believe, is letting talent kind of have their lane to say exactly what they think. So whether it's going on Fox News and talking about what happened with the Chinese balloon, or whether it's going on Fox Sports and saying who I think is going to win, or doing the Clay and Buck show, which is the biggest radio show in the country, uh, I can honestly say nobody tells me what opinions I can have or what I can and cannot say at all, which is why of all the people that were trying, we had a bunch of people trying to buy OutKick because we had tremendous success in the sports gambling space and beyond. Um, and uh, and I thought Fox made the most uh, most sense. And I, I'm grateful that I'm there. Yeah, well, it's it's yeah. I mean, the, the idea of control, is, it's fascinating because, you know, you, you look at from a content perspective, you know, it seems to be a great fit um, with Fox. It, it fills a niche that that maybe wasn't there before. But I, I wonder, especially in the early days of building it, because you mentioned doing the sales, doing everything at OutKick, the coverage when you were first starting it. What what was it like, you know, divvying up your day between the content side and the business side? And, and how did you did you embrace that business side of it? Or was it kind of a hassle to do that aspect of it also? I like it all. But yeah. I mean, I worked all the time. Right. So, I mean, the, the challenge is and this is for anybody who starts a small business, um, you know, there's nobody else to blame. And so when you would have a success it would be you know ecstatic and you're jumping around like oh boy this is super fantastic and then when you would have a failure you were like oh man you know the challenge is to maintain the energy and bring it every single day and so uh so look i mean uh, from a writing perspective you know content perspective my, my grandfather worked in coal mines my great grandfather died of black lung disease in kentucky so I'm not going to sit around and complain that, like, do you know how hard it is to come up with topics to write about on the Internet, you know, sitting in my or heated office in front of my laptop? Um, man, this I've got it really tough. I, I, I try to always contextualize. First of all, I love what I do, but also it's not that hard, right? Yeah. Like relative to the physical demands that my own grandfather, my grandfather on the other side delivered ice, right? I mean, like literally blocks of ice. If I, if I have to work in a coal mine or deliver ice, like those are really hard jobs. Sitting down and uh, and and writing columns or managing stories, it's not hard, especially when you love it. Um, and so, uh, you know, my initial goal was to try to make sure I could take care of my family. And as we had more success, um, you know, the, the opportunities continue to grow. And I'm a big believer in taking advantage of, I think Stephen Johnson is the first person to author 
who I saw use the phrase, the adjacent possible, um, mm. and have success. And as you have new opportunities, your opportunity, your adjacent possible becomes more possible, right? So when I started writing online in 04, I couldn't host a radio show because I hadn't demonstrated that I deserved to be able to host a radio show. And until I hosted a radio show, I couldn't go on television regularly, right? So as you take each of these opportunities, it gives you more opportunities uh, and new challenges, which is really what kind of motivates me. I mean, when we finish this interview, uh, I've got a book coming out in September. And so uh, I'm going to you know, finish here with you and go sit and write for the next couple of hours. Uh-huh. And then promise my eight-year-old that I'm going to play him in Madden. And then I've got a horse date uh, with my, uh, with my 12 year old, we have a horse family championship, which I I currently own, but we have like a champion game several times a week. And so I've got things uh, on the horizon and then I'm hopping a plane and going to be in, uh, in Phoenix for the Super Bowl, which isn't going to suck. No, no, that's a good, that's a good, well, it's interesting perspective because you know, that, that is so important. And I, it's funny, it it reminds me of, of your Twitter feed, which, which I get a kick out of because, uh, you, you don't seem to let the, uh, the haters get to you. I would say you, you, you share them and kind of, you know, relish it or at least laugh at it. Um, and and maybe it is, by the way, I would be the athlete who loves silence after you make a big shot as opposed to a claim. But I also think there are a lot of people who like what we do and say tremendously positive things. Uh, my wife says that what's unique about me is if nine people say something awful, I remember the one thing that people said and somebody said that was nice, which is like the exact opposite of how <laughs> most people's minds work. So it, it really doesn't, you know, uh, it really doesn't impact me. What I've always, what I remember the first time uh, that in social media, if, if I say something and it ends up being wrong, let's say like I pick, I told you, I think the Chiefs are going to win. If right. the Eagles, and my mentions will be loaded down with people who say, ha ha, you're an idiot. Eagles won and whatever, you know, I'm, there's a, a chance I'm going to be wrong. I think that yeah. I like the chiefs, but if the first thing someone thinks when a game ends is I can't wait to go tell Clay Travis what I thought about his opinion. <laughs> I'm so one on such a massive level that it's hard for me to even care, you know, other than to laugh about the fact that that so many people are are fired up about it. No, it's a great look. It's a great perspective. But I, I would say, and I know just enough, and you know a lot of people in this industry. I know a lot of people, you know, at, at all sides of the industry. I wish more people had that perspective because you think of people who are giant stars, and then they get into their mentions and they read a couple negative things, and it really affects them. I mean, I you know, it, not everyone. A lot of people, you know, have thick skin, but. But there are there's a large portion of I think the media industry of people that are really swayed by not even the masses, just by the the certain people that that you know all of a sudden they say something and they get some backlash by 15, 20 people saying something negative that to them. And it actually has an emotional effect and maybe a professional effect on what they might do in the future. So it it, it does take something to overcome that, I think, in this day and age. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is this. I first of all. You can take your opinion seriously and yourself not very seriously at all. I mean, yeah. I think I've done television shows on Fox dressed as a bride, um, and, uh, as a Game of Thrones character, as a lobster. Um, you know, like we're in the entertainment business, right? Uh, and so it's important to keep in mind uh, that fact. What I would say is for people who are executives or people who are in the business of, um, you know, kind of paying attention 
tastemakers as it may be, I don't know why they listen to Twitter at all. <laughs> Those are the people that I find to be most uh, most crazy, right? Because you've spent your whole life, if you are a vice president, uh, let's say, at a major media company, working as hard as you can to ascend to that level. And then you're going to let what random people on Twitter who know far less than you do say about someone or something that you produce to indicate to you what you should or should not be doing. I just think that's crazy. Um, and so I would say, look, I've always said Twitter is a carnival funhouse mirror. It can be entertaining in the same way that walking through a carnival funhouse is. But if you stand in front of the uh, funhouse mirror and decide what your diet is going to be, based on whether it shows you as too tall or too wide or whatever else, you are allowing the artificial playground to distort the way that you see yourself. And for better or worse, I'm very confident in the way that I see myself and what other people say to me doesn't really impact that, uh, that in, in any kind of substantial way. Yeah, that's a, it's a self-awareness. That's, that's important for sure. Well, another thing I would say just from talking to people in the industry that I would say people may be a little bit jealous of you about is the fact that I, I found a lot of times people that work in sports want to be able to talk about politics and people that work in politics a lot of times are like, man, I just want to, you know, cover sports. You've successfully been able to straddle both worlds and continue to. Um, how has that transition been? Because obviously, you know, came up in the sports world, politics, you know, invariably has some connection to to uh to sports as well but but now you know really kind of having a foot in both the, both those worlds how has it been to navigate that uh in this new you know in this new environment well first sports became politics yes. so it's almost impossible to say oh i'm just going to do sports um you know when you've got uh let's say colin kaepernick or you have a situation where uh, players are refusing to play because of larger, you know, societal issues. The Jacob Blake issue, uh, when you've got Black Lives Matter on the basketball court and team like like slogans, political slogans on jerseys as opposed to people's names. Like, how are you not going to talk about it? China, you know, with the uh, whether the players were going to be safe over there, uh, all of the Trump dynamics associated with it. So, I did a three-hour national sports talk radio show. But very often that was politics, and that doesn't even consider COVID and whether you're going to be able to play like high school sports or whether kids are going to have to wear masks on the court. Like these are just a few different examples where literally I was one of the first guys who was like, hey, the NBA should just try to play in a bubble, right? And everybody kind of yeah. laughed at me at that idea. And I, I said on a college, they ended up doing it at Disney. Um, but I, I think they became so inextricably intertwined that it's almost impossible to uh, pull them apart in many ways. Uh, so then ultimately, though, I, I just share my opinions, right? Um, one of the most popular things we did for a long time was Game of Thrones reaction columns. There's nothing to do with sports at all. It's just right. watch a really popular television show, talk about it or write about it. Um, you know, gambling is in many ways like sports gambling. Yes, but it's a little bit of, you know, kind of like assessing the stock market, right? Is there value here? Is there not value? What information brings to bear? Uh, so I've always just kind of seen myself from the moment that I started as in the opinion business. And I would like to think I'm as interesting talking about Joe Biden's State of the Union tomorrow as I am the Super Bowl, as I am the new Yellowstone episode. Uh, you know, people can have varying opinions on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've always been kind of a person who talks about 
everything. And so it hasn't been particularly, you know, I would say difficult for me. Uh, I like to think that I'm good at all those things. Uh, but uh, I just, in the same way that if you went to a dinner party and somebody said, oh, at this dinner party, we're only talking about the sports aspect of the Super Bowl. You might be like, well, Giannis performing at halftime. What do we think about that? Right. right. Well, uh, what color Gatorade is going to get dumped on the head coach? What square is going to win? The most boring possible dinner party you could go to is where there's only one topic. And so uh, I understand people like I've got friends who are like so sports centric that they can never talk about anything other than sports. Uh, um, those guys, the wives hate to be at dinner with them. Uh, and so I just think of, you know, kind of what we do at OutKick as hopefully a really fun dinner party uh, where there's a lot of different topics on every single day. Sports is the foundation. I think certainly about kick, but it doesn't limit us. Yeah. I mean, look, sports is culture now, you know, politics is culture, obviously, you know, whatever the game of Thrones, the halftime show, all of its culture. It's, it's, it's become so intertwined coming up the business of talk radio and linear television. And what makes Nashville such a hot media town that's next. But first it's another edition of how did this get published? This time we look at the Daily Beast's bizarre anti-Nate Silver screed. The corporate press across the board is in a perilous position as we enter 2023, and so it's not surprising that ABC News would be among the many media outlets making cuts this year. It's also not necessarily surprising that 538, Nate Silver's analytics outfit, might be taking some hits from under the ABC umbrella. But the Daily Beast's Lachlan Cartwright found one of the stranger ways to illustrate his, quote, scoop that ABC has put 538 on the chopping block when Silver's contract is up this summer. Questions over 538's future come as Silver faces public criticism for his reliance on polls that inaccurately predicted a red wave in the midterm elections, writes Cartwright in the middle of his piece. He then quotes a random Democratic strategist and former ABC News producer who says, 538 was used by partisan sources to create a false impression of the election and that Nate was aware this was happening and by not addressing it, he ended up contributing to misleading the American people about what was happening in the election and then describes this as an existential threat to 538. What? All polls and aggregations and analyses of polls like what 538 really is were more favorable to the GOP in 2022 than the reality turned out to be. But of all the sources out there, Silver's 538 was actually closest to reality. In his final election forecast, he gave only a 59% chance the GOP would take the Senate, which was far less of a chance than almost every other analysis gave it, and certainly from all the useless pundits. Silver's nuanced Twitter thread about it at the time makes it very clear that this criticism is completely ridiculous. Now, I'm not some Silver stan, but I do appreciate his rational take on everything from sports to politics to COVID. And I can't help but think the irrational silver hatred, which brings us bizarre pieces like this, stems from his heterodox COVID views from 2020 and 2021, which, of course, turned out to be totally true. Cartwright's scoop may be true, and silver could be leaving ABC this year. But the rest of the unnecessary and fact-free color? The Daily Beast. How did this get published? 
More with Clay Travis coming up, but I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. Yes, Fourth Watch now has gone independent in 2023, and paid subscribers get a whole bunch of extra content from original deep dive columns called Rabbit Hole to the full podcasts each episode. Check it out for just five bucks a month or $50 for a year at fourthwatch.media. And now back to Clay Travis. Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show, huge radio show, as you mentioned, biggest radio show in the country. I'm excited I, to to come on and uh, when my book comes out in a couple of weeks and uh, yeah. talk with you guys uh, on there. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, getting to know Buck, uh, because I, I've known Buck from back in the in the blaze days, um, way, way back, um, how that has been, you know, having a co-host like that. Um, and then also really just the form of talk radio, because it is, it is so powerful still. And we talk about all of the changes in the media and the move to digital and all of that is real. But at the same same time there is such power in in the traditional as well yeah i mean look millions of people listen to us every week on the radio show uh and i think that sometimes surprises people what i would say initially in sports by the way is i came out of college football which is probably the sport that is most overlooked by new york and la Hmm. and so i'm on the road in the sec for the past two years for the biggest college football game in the south every week and those people are driving around in their cars, middle part of the country, listening to talk radio. And I came out of full-time sports talk radio. And so, look, I've loved doing the show with Buck. Um, Julie Talbot, who is phenomenal at iHeart, was my boss on sports. And what we found was during COVID, when there were no sports going on, the audience listening to me skyrocketed. So March, April, May, June, you can imagine you've got a three-hour daily show And there isn't a single sporting event going on. Right. So not like you're reacting to whatever happened in the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball the night before. There's literally none of that going on. I didn't take a single day off. Our audience skyrocketed. And they came to me and said, look, people listen to you for your opinion. They don't listen to you just for your sports opinion. And they they pitched me on taking over the biggest radio show uh, in in the country. Right. And uh, and. I had gotten to know Buck a little bit because he and I uh, were similar in the the way that we responded to COVID and masking and all that stuff. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, Buck is a long time, like when he was 12, he knew what he thought the tax code rate should be, right? And he knew what he thought about uh, the Second Amendment. And, you know, like he is a uh, dyed-in-the-wool, big-time committed conservative uh, radio guy. Yeah. Not a sports it, guy either. Yeah. Not anything about sports really. Yeah. And, and it, you know, doesn't know very much about sports. Um, and so his trajectory was different than mine, but during COVID we end up in the same place. And I really believe we have the smartest daily media show. Uh, and there's a lot of smart ones, but I think we have the smartest daily media show, uh, in the country. Um, and that's the goal, right. Um, to, uh, to in, engage and enlighten, but uh, but also to, uh, to 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 be right on the facts. I always say, you know, you can agree or disagree with my opinion, but the analogy I would use all the time is, if I said like this year, I don't think that Tam- that Tom Brady and the Bucks are going to win the Super Bowl. You could agree or disagree with me, right? I would have ended up being correct. Um, but if I said, oh, I don't think Tom Brady and the Bucks are going to win the Super Bowl. Because Brady can't win the big game and he's never been to the Super Bowl before. <laughs> like you could agree with my conclusion, but you should trust my opinion less because the facts that I use to support it 
are inaccurate and in fact wrong. And one of the things that troubles me now is there's very little, oftentimes, um, you know, unpacking of the logic by which people get to their opinions. I'm confident in my facts and in my logic. You might disagree with where they take me, but there is an important factual basis. The foundation of any argument is fact. And I think sometimes that is being lost in a hyperpolarized arena. Yeah, no, it's great also because it's it's fun. You know, I, I think it's so much so much of our of our politics now is so serious. Um, and and you know, and forget the the side that's just making up their own facts and, and spinning you completely completely wrong. At least you know, having fun with it, which is which is great. Um, yeah, you know, it, the the talk radio also kind of gets to the whole Super Bowl um, being one of the really it used to be Super Bowl. Sorry, to sports. we were the smartest. The View is the dumbest daily oh, okay. show. That, That's the comparison. I consider us to be the smartest daily show. And the View is definitely the dumbest uh, that's going on on a daily basis. Sorry to cut you off, but I wanted to kind of give my, my opinion on the spectrum of, of brilliant to stupidity. Got it. Okay. So we know where the spectrum ends. Uh, that, that's good. That's good to know. Um, yeah. You know, the Super Bowl, you know, it used to be Super Bowl. NFL, you know, live sports and award shows. And there was, you know, certain top, uh, you know, broadcast television shows that were never going to lose their audience. You know, they, they were just going to, and and now, I mean, it really is pretty much just like the NFL. I, I honestly don't even know if there's, you could even say live sports and obviously Super Bowl at the, at the, the, t- the height of that. Um, what do you think it is about that, I mean, about live sports that has sustained the changes to the television industry um, that, that you know, others that felt unbeatable, you know, the Oscars, the Grammys, whatever, that, uh, that have just completely been swept away with. I think the NFL and college football, which I would build in as well, yeah. um, every, and I think Reed Hastings is right, that everybody now is competing against sleep. Right. Like there's so many options. Everybody out there listening to us right now or watching us probably has five shows they'd like to watch that they haven't gotten to. And you may have a string of podcasts that you want to listen to that you haven't gotten to. You might have a stack of books. Media is very competitive. Uh, I think what's great about the NFL is you only have to give three hours a day to your favorite team. And you can basically be as well informed as almost anybody else. Right. Same thing in college football. Games go on a little bit longer. Maybe you need four hours. But you can give a Saturday or a Sunday over to football, and you know basically everything. I love taking my kids to Major League Baseball games. It's hard to keep up with Major League Baseball. The NBA, 82 regular season. The NHL does as well. Um, It's hard to keep up because I've got three kids. I've got sporting events every night, it feels like. i got kids' school events. I'm not going to be able to sit down every night and watch those games, but I can make the time to watch my favorite teams play on Saturday and Sunday. And then I think you add in fantasy, which makes you care about every team more than just your own. And then you add in gambling and it gives you a rooting interest in every single game. I think all of those have worked most aggressively in favor of the NFL and college football, which is why I'm still super bullish on both of those leagues more so than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it seems like it's not going away anytime soon. Um, a couple of last questions before the uh, lightning round. First, uh, you were really early on, I would say, Nashville as a media city. I mean, it's, it has become this enormous hub at this point um, in sports and in politics and in, in media. 
Uh, what do you think it does for you and just sort of the brand to be outside of the traditional media hubs of New York, DC, LA, being Yeah, I, I see the foundation of my audience as SEC and Big Ten fans. Now, you can still toss in the Big 12 college sports fans, right? Middle part of the country, the Midwest and the South, the meat and potatoes part of our country is where I think OutKick's base is. And I think in that middle part of the country, Nashville has a lot of cachet. It's funny. I'm born and raised here. Um, and uh, I was talking recently with Nate Bargatze, who's the exact same age as me, really talented comedian. And we both grew up here. And we were talking about, you know, Nashville used to not be a very cool place. And, you know, it was kind of like we would jokingly refer to Nashville as Nash Vegas. You go downtown in Nashville now, it's like Las Vegas. It's crazy with live music, the bars, and everything else. And so I think my career has in many ways mirrored the growth of the city of Nashville. And initially, when I was early in my career, people would say, oh, if you really want to matter, you've got to move to New York or L.A. to matter. Like, that's where all of the big media uh, outlets are. That's where you take your career to the next level. Now everybody's coming to Nashville. Uh, I was texting with one of my buddies this morning and he's like, and it's not just, by the way, certainly sports, certainly media, but a ton of celebrities uh, now. And uh, one of my buddies was saying like, Hey, I was just dropping my kid off. And, uh, and Jason Priestley, AKA Brandon Walsh is in the same, you know, if you'd ever told me that when I was watching Beverly Hills, 902 and O back in the day, uh, that uh, that I'd be looking at Brandon Walsh and we'd have our kids in the same school. That would have been crazy. But I think per capita, other than New York and L.A., I think per capita, Nashville's even bigger in terms of its number of entertainers, media personalities, athletes, so quote-unquote celebrities. And I will say in Nashville, one of the things that was always a big deal was everybody gets given their space. There's not really a TMZ feel here where you get chased around by everybody else in Nashville, because of the country music thing, it was always big to be just normal. And uh, and I think the culture of the city still allows people to be normal and have families and just kind of live normal life. I'll give you another example. Tim McGraw, who obviously is a huge superstar musician, as well as now in the uh, in the Taylor uh, Sheridan, you know, Yellowstone community, right. he worked as the uh, as the yard guy. Uh, meaning the uh, the yardstick guy at high school football games, uh, where daughters went to school. So you have this, you know, icon, which I love, right? You have this iconic celebrity uh, figure who's on the sidelines walking with the chains to see whether or not high school kids get first downs where his he didn't have sons where his daughters went to school and I think were on the sidelines cheerleading. I think that normalcy, I think that understanding of your audience is really important. And that's why I love being on the road for college football, because I am surrounded bars, restaurants, uh, by what I would call just everyday people who are the heartbeat of America in the Big Ten and in the SEC. And I'm not trying to leave out the ACC or Pac-12 or uh, or Big 12 fans. It's all changing around, yeah. Yeah, but I think really part of the country um, is, uh, is outkicks base. And I think it's important for us to live among them as opposed to, to living on a coast somewhere. Yeah, well, I'm with you. As, uh, it's Will Keane and I in, in Dallas trying to make Dallas a thing. But but yeah, no, yeah it's uh, it's it, Nashville's, uh, it's, it's booming. Tax is big for all of the, in Texas and Florida and Tennessee, 
you know, for a lot of these celebrities, uh, Nashville is a great place to raise your family. But it also is pretty fantastic that you don't have to pay 14 or 15 percent of your income uh, to a state like you would in New York or California. More with Clay, including the Fourth Watch lightning round and his thoughts on the Daily Wire Stephen Crowder fiasco available for paid subscribers of Fourth Watch on Substack. Just a few minutes left, but you can go and listen to that now at fourthwatch.media to try it. Thanks so much to Clay Travis and go check out outkick.com. There's so much great stuff over there. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media or become a paying subscriber today. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download and follow and like and rate and review this show, Fourth Watch Podcast, on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.